This is Radio EcoShock with Alex Smith. The latest and best overview of climate feedbacks is out. UK scientist Tim Lenton reports possible futures. From New York, author and activist Andrew Boyd on his new book, I Want a Better Catastrophe. Radio EcoShock starts right now. China and India are increasing coal burning. Oil and gas companies never made so much money. We know what is going to happen, except we don't. Even with stunning climate science, global models, and the summary reports, we could be flying blind into unexpected catastrophes. A group of leading scientists say many risky feedback loops amplify the need for climate action. They have a list of 60 forces, physical, biologic, and human, all bouncing into our times, feeding back into a destabilized climate. Here to explain is one of our favorite British scientists, Professor Tim Linton, Director of Global Systems Institute at the University of Exeter. Tim is a co-author of the new paper, along with Bill Ripple from Oregon, and two of my heroes, Johan Rockstrom of the Stockholm Resilience Center, and Hans-Joachim Schellenhuber, founding director of the Potsdam Institute. These are senior climate scientists, and they are worried. From the UK, Tim Lenton, welcome back to Radio EcoShock. Thanks for having me on the show. Is it true, Tim? Are you and your co-authors worried about the known unknowns of climate change? I'm afraid we are. Yes, we're in this particular study, we're just cataloging and highlighting the feedback loops that can amplify climate change and and noting that we still need to do better at um, studying and quantifying those because they can act together to uh, make make that climate change considerably worse. Could you remind our listeners of what a climate feedback loop is and maybe give us an example? Yeah, so a climate feedback loop is when an initial change in the climate, like some amount of warming, triggers a response from within the climate system that either adds to the warming or counteracts it. If it adds to the warming, we call it a reinforcing or amplifying feedback loop. If it counteracts the warming, we would call it a damping feedback loop or a balancing feedback loop. And we have to worry about how strong, in particular, are the amplifying feedback loops. So how much of an extra change you get from the feedback. And there are several of those amplifying feedback loops. And an example would be one we refer to as the ice albedo feedback, which is a fancy scientific way of talking about how if you replace a highly reflective surface of ice, like sea ice on the ocean in the Arctic, with a darker ocean surface, if you melt the ice away, then that darker ocean surface absorbs way more sunlight, um, all of the sunlight, basically, that the ice would have been reflecting. That heats things up further and tends to melt more sea ice, which exposes even more dark ocean surface, which absorbs more heat and melts more sea ice and so on. And that one's a pretty strong uh, reinforcing feedback. You and your co-authors have been studying feedbacks and tipping points for years. Why bring out this new big list? (laughs) It felt like... um, 
we ought to look again and update the list of feedback loops because the last time it had really been thoroughly catalogued that I can remember was probably um, in a paper I read from back in the 1990s. So it seemed useful just to review where our understanding was at and how long the list was, how many reinforcing feedback loops there are on there compared to the balancing feedback loops, and then think about you know, how well are we modeling or representing these feedback loops in our efforts to model climate change? Because crucially, if we're missing some reinforcing loops, the reinforcing loops kind of amplify each other. So the more you have of them, um, the stronger the overall response. Yes, that's one of the keys to this new paper. And you break things down into what I would call physical feedback mechanisms and then biological mechanisms and then human mechanisms. So it becomes quite a list. I thought the role of biological life changing climate has been mainly left out by a lot of science, but not at all in this paper. You add 21 feedback mechanisms possible from the reactions of plants and animals to changing conditions. Are these biological feedbacks minor compared to the big physical systems like ocean currents or sea ice decline? It depends is the kind of uh, short answer, but some of them are quite significant. In fact, there's really important damping feedback that's coming, especially from the land um, biosphere and ecosystems. And we, we talk about that, at least scientifically, as what we call the land carbon sink. But it's the observation that of all of the greenhouse gas, mostly carbon dioxide, we, we humans put in the air each year, the land takes up more than a quarter, maybe sometimes a third of that. And that's a crucial damping feedback that's been uh, slowing down, if you like, climate change. But there are equally a number of reinforcing feedbacks from the biosphere. And in fact, that one, the land carbon sink, there's a risk that um, different parts of the land surface can be tipped from a land carbon sink to a land carbon source due to the detrimental impacts of climate change on the biosphere, which could be things like droughts, impacting plant productivity and fires, destroying forests, and so on. I was hoping to see more in the paper about the biological drivers plankton and bacteria. You have one note about plankton and say it's uncertain, and microbiological activity is listed as positive, raising emissions of other greenhouse gases like nitrous oxide. But still, we don't know much about the world's largest mass of living matter, microscopic life, and we don't know how it will react to warming. Would you agree? Well, we know something about it, but we need to know more. So characteristically, when you warm things up, um, microbes generally like that, and they do their, their metabolic processes, like uh, maybe they respire carbon with oxygen, just like you and I do, or maybe they uh, live in anoxic oxygen-free conditions, and maybe they turn organic carbon into methane. Both of those processes are pretty highly temperature-sensitive. And so if you warm the world up, you get more carbon respired or turned into methane, both of which things uh, are amplifying feedbacks on climate change. But what we don't know as well as we should is whether if you warm the world up and give it a bit of time, will the microbial community uh, change and change in a way where those responses aren't the same, basically. Some experiments have shown this is experimental 
where the with deliberate warming of soils, for example, is done. Some of those experiments have shown that if you give it enough time, in biologist language, the microbial community changes or acclimates to the changed climate, and maybe the the rates of those carbon release processes come back down again, which would be good news if it was more widely true. So your master list of feedbacks includes seven that are negative or damping, as you say, and these should cool the planet or at least slow down warming. Could those factors also amplify enough to compete with human-induced warming? Not as far as any of our models would suggest. Um, In fact, there's more of a worry that the damping feedbacks, especially in the carbon cycle, so what are called the land and ocean carbon sinks, if anything, are going to get sort of proportionally weaker than they have been due to the climate change. Then there are these physical damping feedbacks, but they're kind of governed by the laws of physics. Certainly in the case of the one that we hardly ever think about, which is any warm body in the universe, if you make it warmer, it gives off more radiation, or if you cool it down, it gives off less radiation. Well, that's like a famous physical kind of law almost, but it's not about to change, and we know exactly how that relationship works. Where things are quite uncertain and important is in how do clouds respond to climate change. Some cloud feedbacks can damp climate change, others could amplify it, and it's just an area, a massive area of work to still try to get to the bottom of the different cloud feedbacks and how they might change in the changing climate. Recently, there's been some progress on that using like satellite measurements to get a better handle on, for example, whether clouds over the Great Southern Ocean are full of ice crystals or not. And that turns out to really matter for the resulting climate feedback because when we warm the world up, if your clouds are full of ice crystals that melt into little water droplets, that's actually quite a good damping feedback. It turns out the clouds get more reflective if you turn the ice into water. But the measurements told us that, oh, actually those clouds have got a lot less ice in them than we thought they did. And that means when you warm the world up, you can quite rapidly max out or switch off that feedback and stop its damping effect. That turns out to be really important um, because, unfortunately, that means without that damping feedback, you suddenly get much more global warming for any given change in greenhouse gas levels. In 2018, two of your co-authors published a classic paper, Trajectories of the Earth System in the Anthropocene. In that paper, Figure 2 showed a possible shelf called Stabilized Earth, much safer than warming all the way to hothouse Earth. And since then, humans have only increased greenhouse gas emissions even more this year, cresting at 3.5 parts per million added. Given the 27 positive feedback loops with many tipping points and nearby in time, do you think an alternative to hothouse Earth is still possible? I do think so, thankfully. And I was an author on that, uh, that, that 2018 paper. It's still possible, and there are probably other Earths that we weren't drawn on the diagram as well that are possible. I would call one of them the wet house Earth, where we've lost major ice sheets. The sea levels are much higher, and the and the continental coastlines are redrawn. But yeah, it's, luckily we're still in a situation where there is overall quite a lot of um, amplifying feedback in the system but not enough to send us over the, the metaphorical cliff edge into hothouse earth. 
basically we're in a situation where with no feedbacks at all, um, except for the sort of fundamental laws of physics, if we doubled the carbon dioxide level in the atmosphere, we'd expect about, we would have expected about 1.2 degrees centigrade of warming, whereas including the feedbacks we know about, we expect that number to be more like 3 degrees centigrade on the century timescale and could be as much as 6 degrees centigrade on the long uh, millennial timescale. So that's saying that there is a lot of overall amplification in the climate system, but crucially it's not at the point where it will go into runaway and just be self-propelling warming, which is the house earth scenario. Uh, we still need to really work out how plausible and how much extra push it needs to get to hothouse Earth. But the crucial thing is, if you have a system that's already quite a strong amplifier and there's some feedback you missed that is just a little bit of extra amplification, well, it adds disproportionately onto what you already have. And people who do electrical engineering and make circuits and actual real amplifiers um, know, know this quite well. So... That's the crucial stuff we're trying to get to the bottom of, and hopefully this paper helps a little bit. In 2017, the IPCC said average global warming reached 1 degree C, about 2 degrees Fahrenheit, over pre-industrial. They predicted 1.5 degrees C of warming by 2040. Now, to me, that seems out the window. What do you think? (laughs) Well, I think we are going to hit 1.5 degrees C warming. When we're going to hit it, well, we could have a year soon, certainly in the 2030s, where we hit it temporarily, and the average will be going through 1.5 degrees C sometime in the 2030s or 2040s. But there's still a lot to play for, because from my own studies of damaging climate tipping points, we know that several are at risk, but those risks go up disproportionately more for each point one degree C of warming and the same would be true for other kinds of climate damages and impacts so every point one of a degree C counts um, as a simple message I guess even though it looks sadly like they're definitely going to transgress that 1.5 degree C target and unfortunately current policies such as they are are still taking us into a world it's going to be at least two and a half degrees C warmer in the second half of this century. And depending on these feedbacks, it could be quite a bit warmer than that. You know, in this whole important paper, I only found one sentence where I strongly disagree. You and your co-authors write, quote, The accuracy of climate models is of vital importance since they guide climate mitigation efforts by informing policymakers about the expected effects of anthropogenic emissions, end quote. But really, policymakers are not mitigating anything about emissions. We're just expanding into the natural world. It's all increasing. Do you think academics are over-optimistic about the role of science in this whole policy thing? Well, we, we do have a propensity to be over-optimistic, and we, we like to believe that we live in a world of evidence-based policymaking. But I spend a bit of time with some great policymakers, and, and even they acknowledge that there's quite a lot of policy-based evidence-making, as they call it. So, and we're not all naive about the situation. On the plus side, there are some bold policies that might be, might be presented as due to other reasons, um, but here I'm thinking of things like the Inflation Reduction Act in the U.S., 
that are actually quite bold moves to incentivize and accelerate the transition to renewable energy, electrified transport, and all the rest, which isn't the whole solution. But um, from my own analysis, it's clear we need um, strong policies to greatly accelerate our efforts to decarbonize the economy and to kind of switch from destroying forests and land use being a source of greenhouse gases to you know, working with the land and ecosystems to hopefully to help them take up greenhouse gases. There's some policies that are really appearing now that are going to help that. Um, we, need, we need more, but um, I'm not without some sense of realistic hope, I guess, whilst also realising that often the science isn't really getting a full look in. Tim Lenton, back to the science. What is the difference between feedback loops and tipping points, and do they interact? So a tipping point is a particular kind of phenomenon that can happen when a reinforcing feedback loop within a system gets really strong. gets so strong that, if we think about it abstractly, if you put one unit of change into the system initially, it goes around the feedback loop once and gives you additional units of change, which can then go around again and give you another unit and another unit. That's a kind of runaway situation. Most reinforcing feedback loops are not that strong. You put one unit of change in, you might get back 0.1 units of change. You go around again, you get 0.01 units of change and so on, and that converges. So tipping points are like a special case of really strong reinforcing feedback, and that's how it's differentiated from this general picture of trying to understand both damping and reinforcing feedbacks of all, all kinds of strength. Also, this paper we're talking about is trying to look at the feedback on global temperature, basically. So feedbacks explicitly at the global level. When I talk about a tipping point in a part of the climate system, the crucial strong reinforcing feedback that can bring about a tipping point is is within that system, not not necessarily to the whole global temperature. So what I mean is, like, within the Greenland ice sheet system, if you warm the Greenland ice sheet up, the surface drops in altitude, that puts it into warmer air, which warms things up further, and that, that feedback can get strong enough to go into runaway. But it's not a, a necessarily a strong feedback to the global temperature or the global situation. Those are the key distinctions, but clearly they're related. And some tipping points, like the possibility of abrupt thawing of the permafrost, uh, which is kind of related to a feedback whereby there's, uh, heat gets released within the system that thaws more permafrost and so on. Well, that one is quite important for the other reason, that it is also an important feedback to global warming. Not a runaway feedback to global warming, thankfully, but quite a significant amplifier. And that's super important, but not all, some tipping points also have that um, amplifying feedback to global warming. Another one would be the tipping point for the Amazon rainforest would release a lot of carbon, as would a tipping point for boreal forests. Then there are other tipping points, like to lose coral reefs in the tropics on a large scale, that would be a disaster for lots of reasons, but would not have a strong feedback, not an amplifying one anyway, to global climate. Check out the Radio EcoShock website. We're at ecoshock.org. You are tuned to Radio EcoShock. I'm Alex Smith. Our guest is Professor Tim Lenton from the University of Exeter, and we're talking about new science 
Warning feedback loops could destabilize climate much sooner than we thought. Scientists Kevin Trenberth and Michael Mann suggest buffering by the global ocean is powerful enough to contain further warming, including feedback effects, once humans stop adding more greenhouse gases. Do you agree, or could a combination of feedbacks overpower even ocean buffering? (laughs) Well, what we know is that the ocean is doing a couple of important things. It's it's taking up carbon dioxide, so that's what we call the ocean carbon sink. And, yeah, it's taking up heat, and it's expanding because of that, and that's a key part of the global warming itself. And what our models suggest, um, well, uh, interestingly, it varies from model to model, but if we could stop all the greenhouse gas emissions, the removal of carbon by the ocean, the sink, would gradually fall away because the sink is driven basically by the emissions, putting stuff in, into the atmosphere that then wants to react with the ocean. And as for the heat uptake of the ocean, well, uh, most models would predict um, you would still have a time where you continue to take up heat in the ocean because what the whole climate or planet is trying to do is find what we call energy balance. And we'll be, we'll, we're in a situation where we're out of energy balance and there's more heat being trapped in the climate than can escape. And to balance things up, the ocean needs to warm up such that it will radiate more heat back out to space, basically. So that actually carries on for quite a while, even if you shut off the emissions. And there's a kind of competition between the fact that you'd expect the the CO2 and greenhouse gas level in the atmosphere to be declining, but the ocean heat uptake might still be increasing. In some models, those two things kind of cancel out and you get a temperature flat line. In some models, you get a small cooling that kind of like the the, car, the declining greenhouse gases kind of wins. In other models, it carries on warming because still the ocean heats up taking adjustment winds. Overall, best guess, which is sort of if you stop the emissions, you just get roughly a stable temperature for quite a long time. Um, but we could be, it could go either way is the, the sort of <laughs> the honest answer. Some of the most radical projections out there on the net about warming, especially in the near term, build on the idea that we can add expected warming from each feedback mechanism to reach a scary total, like simple math. Other scientists caution it's not that simple. There's both positive warming and negative cooling feedbacks uh, working around. What do you think? Well, I'm with the it's not that simple, but what I would emphasize is our best assessment is we're in a situation of uh, overall amplifying feedback, but it's constrained. It's not going to it's not going to cause runaway, thankfully, runaway global climate change. But the big question is how much is the overall amplification? So that's why we build uh, these sophisticated climate models and compare different models to see if we can get a consistent picture. And we still have quite a lot of uncertainty over what climate scientists call climate sensitivity, which is kind of a simple way of expressing how much is this overall amplification, because it just tries to describe how much warmer will the world get um, if you double the carbon dioxide level in the atmosphere. And try as we might for decades, we've been trying to narrow that thing down and get a best guess on it, and it still has a fair uncertainty range on it, and our best guess sometimes goes up and sometimes comes back down again. 
And what we've seen in the last decade is these new observations that I mentioned of those ice crystals and clouds over the Southern Ocean. Well, that, when it was used to inform the models, it suddenly tended to make the climate sensitivity higher in the models. So sometimes maybe we come up, we discover something new and improve the models and it goes the other way. But unfortunately, there's still we're still living with that uncertainty and we can constrain the lower limit on climate sensitivity with observations because you know we've seen a certain amount of warming so the climate sensitivity can't be below the level that's needed to explain the warming we've seen but it's harder to constrain the upper limit and that's what we continue to work on. So, Tim, do you and your colleagues think it's possible that warming, instead of climbing gradually, could jump up a step, arriving at surprising heat, not just as a series of events, but as a new state? I sincerely hope that won't happen. I would would just say that I'd like to be able to rule that out, but we can't rule it out. It's still what I'd call a a possible scenario. Um, Perhaps a scientist like me's task is to try to rule that out, and if they can't rule it out, then they have to keep highlighting it and encourage others to work on it. But in essence, for there to be that kind of global tipping point to a different climate state, the reinforcing feedbacks would need to be a little bit more and a little bit stronger than the models currently have them. And that's why this recent paper could be relevant, because there are highlights if you reinforcing feedbacks and that may not be being modeled as much or as well as they should be. Equally, one could argue we might have missed some damping feedbacks that could bring things back the other way. So uh, it's just in a risk assessment spirit that one has to say, well, if I can't rule out that really catastrophic outcome, I need to consider it and keep thinking about it and try to avoid it if it's possible. From what I'm hearing from you, uh, given our undeniable gains in climate knowledge, it sounds like we're still, as a civilization, rather stumbling around in the dark as we try to guess the amount and timing of climate disaster. Is that fair? I sometimes feel like the blind man stumbling around looking uh, yeah, looking for their keys, maybe, <laughs> that they've dropped. I'd probably, to be honest, say it's not that bad. There's some plenty of core aspects of the basics of climate change that, that are kind of 19th century physics and are well tied down. The problem, as you highlight, Alex, is definitely in these um, nonlinear changes, tipping points, possibilities of strong feedback. That's where we need to keep working. And, and somewhat ironically, it feels like, as a whole, the climate community is not spent as much effort trying to tie those things down as it might have spent just trying to establish, you know, the most likely climate response. And I think there are lots of reasons historically why the focus was on trying to work out the most likely outcome, partly because we were in a very defensive mode as a community under continual attack from climate skeptics and deniers and vested interests and you name it. But now, hopefully, ha-ha, we've got past that. And now, if we want to give the rest of society a really good risk assessment, we need to look uh, at a possibly less likely or more uncertain but really high-impact uh, outcomes and try to understand those and constrain those better. 
And quickly, could you give us an example of one of the 15 human feedbacks that you found that could disrupt the climate? <laughs> I'm not even sure if this would have been one that we put in this particular paper, but it's one I remember from a study that inspired me that was published way back in the late 80s or early 1990s. Even then, Dan Lashoff, uh, he spotted that and this isn't good news, but he spotted that the warming of the Arctic was going to open up possible fossil fuel reserves in the Arctic that might then get exploited, which would add to the greenhouse gas emissions and add to the warming and the Arctic melting. That was quite a prescient um, forecast in 89 or 91 when he first published it, because unfortunately since then we have seen some, some global powers uh, seeking to do just that. So you're scientists, you're not officially activists, yet this new paper concludes we need transformative change to almost every aspect of human life, starting with the energy industry, but going on to population policies, education, and equality. It's a huge order. Why now? Why the urgency? Well, because we feel like we're staring down the barrel of a climate gun. I think if you're someone like me and you see the evidence well, partly the evidence that we could be at or very close to several big tipping points, but also evidence like the extraordinary climate extremes we've all witnessed on the television and some people have suffered directly in recent years. There can't be too many listeners not acknowledging that, wow, the climate is surprising us in a bad way with things we weren't expecting. So for me, I feel there's something constructive I can offer in the solution space because the same tipping point thinking that we apply to the risks in the climate can also be applied to solving the climate crisis because we know there are strong reinforcing feedbacks in the expansion of new technologies like renewable energy, electrified transport and so on. And once we become aware of that, we can even begin to say, well, which policies and actions could uh, make those reinforcing feedbacks stronger and could bring forward what I call positive tipping points to accelerate the change we need to reduce our impact on the planet. From the Global Systems Institute at the University of Exeter, we've been speaking with Professor Timothy Lenton. He is co-author of the new paper, Many Risky Feedback Loops Amplify the Need for Climate Action. It was published in the journal One Earth on February 17, 2023. You can find links in my show blog at ecoshock.org. Tim Lenton, thank you for sharing your valuable time with our listeners. Thank you, Alex. You're listening to EcoShock Radio for the world. I'm Alex Smith. Get it all at our website, ecoshock.org. This is Radio EcoShock with your host, Alex Smith. Okay, we are doomed. The atmosphere and now the weather's gone off the rails. The pandemic is supposedly over, but thousands of people still die every week. The stock market is shaky. Need I go on? If you know all that, what now? Longtime activist, prankster, and culture jammer Andrew Boyd has a few ideas. His latest book is out. It is called, I Want a Better Catastrophe, Navigating the Climate Crisis with Grief, Hope, and Gallows Humor. From New York City, Andrew Boyd, welcome to Radio EcoShock. Thank you, Alex. Uh, pleasure to be here. This book, it isn't a book, really. It's, it's kind of a journey, a, a pilgrim's progress, if you will. Do you really think it's time for the we are doomed conversation? 
No. Um, I think maybe the conversation is we could be doomed if we keep doing the destructive, irresponsible, unconscionable things that we are currently in the process of doing. It's a conversation of we could be doomed and what do we do to both not assume we are doomed and what can we do to not be doomed? So it's like a, both a question of a emotional, psychological, moral, spiritual orientation to decide that we must act in the face of our possible doom as well as what that would entail. And that's the book takes takes that up. It's not a, an easy question. It's not an obvious question. It's complicated. It requires a reckoning and uh, digging down into our into our souls and sort of working out some strategies and, you know, making commitments uh, and looking at some of the troubling, dark hole that we've dug for ourselves on, on the many fronts you mentioned, crossing ecological limits and their economic and social impacts in particular. Uh, what kind of hope is uh, fit for purpose, uh, given that we've already crossed some red lines that will permanently damage the planet and the life systems we depend on? And uh, tear at our social fabric in very unjust and unpleasant ways. And, and you founded several movements that connected worried people and gave them some hope in each other. Tell us how the Climate Ribbon action works. The Climate Ribbon is a is a global story sharing project, um, a way uh, for us to move through our climate grief to uh, climate action. Uh, basically, it asks one central question and then a follow-up question. And that central question is, what do I love too much to lose? What's at stake for me? You know, where am I planting my flag here? What matters so much that I will take a stand and do what's necessary to protect it? You know, and we've, we ask that question both in small gatherings in, in church rec rooms uh, and at, in the streets of the hugest climate gatherings in New York, Paris, uh, elsewhere. Uh, you know, the answers are uh, quite diverse depending on, you know, who you are and what your experience is and what you dig down into and re realize uh, matters to you so much that you'll do something about it. One person said, the tree in my grandmother's backyard that I planted with her when I was four years old, you know, that was somebody from Macedonia. Other people said, you know, somebody from, uh, from Southern Florida said, Miami, my city, you know, because that's the level of things that are, are kind of in the crosshairs that are at stake. Uh, an eight-year-old boy from the Rockaways in New York City, which was one of the areas worst hit by Hurricane Sandy, who'd seen all that he loved, threatened and almost lost. You know, he said, my books, my toys, my apartment, my friends, my mom. He didn't want to lose that. He'd almost lost that once and he didn't want to lose that again. And so then people sort of find the thing that matters to them. And then they write it, write it on a ribbon tie it onto an altar in a church or in a huge tree in some of these larger gatherings. And then alongside thousands of other ribbons, uh, the people writing similar things, and then find another one that matters to them, that moves them and uh, remove it from the big tree that it might be tied onto and tie it onto your wrist and become the sort of guardian of that person's thing that they most treasure. And someone's doing that with your, your ribbon. So we build a kind of what we called an intimate solidarity you know, each person taking responsibility for the, the dearest thing that the other person doesn't want to lose and sort of having that ground your commitment and make you feel like, you know, we're all in this together at some level. And um, I'm going to recommit to uh, climate action and um, doing what I can to uh, lessen the really negative outcomes from our the cli unfolding climate catastrophe. And there's a follow-up question that we sometimes ask people to write on the back of the ribbon, which is, 
what do I love too much to lose on the one side? And then what am I going to do about on the other side of the river? We need to move through the grief, acknowledge, you know, what could be lost, um, give that its own due and space. Then, okay, what now? What do I do? What can I do? What's still worth doing? Um, that's the climate rhythm. You're also the chief existential officer, the CEO of something called Climate Clock. What is that? That is also a global project that creates a a timeline. The climate problem is not something that we can solve later. It's something we have to solve now. As Bill McKibben says, it is a timed test. As Greta says, if uh, you're telling the climate story, but you're not including the notion of a ticking clock, you are not telling the true story. We have to uh, accomplish certain things within a certain timeline, or else we are in even worse trouble than we already are. So it is very much a time balance. Thus, the emergency referring to these of the rest of this decade as the critical decade to take action. So if that's true, then there should be a clock that is keeping time, that is getting us on the right time frame, that is uh, tracking our progress on the goals we need to meet within that time frame. So that's the climate clock. And it exists as, mo- as a monument, first up in New York, but now in other cities around the world, in Glasgow, and in, in Seoul, Korea, and Rome, and other cities to come. And then also as a, as a sort of handheld clock as a tool for activists to hold decision makers accountable that has the numbers ticking on it. And um, the key numbers are one, it has both a, a deadline and the progress we need to make. So it's both got a, a deadline and a lifeline or deadline and multiple lifelines. And the lifelines are solution pathways that we need to make progress on. The most notable of those solution pathways is the percentage of the world's energy currently coming from renewables. And that is up to 13.5%. That's a great accomplishment and it is going in the right direction towards the 100% we need to get it up to, but it is not going fast enough. Uh, there's other things that we're tracking, you know, more justice-oriented uh, solutions, uh, including uh, indigenous land sovereignty and Etc. But um, let's just focus on the one key lifeline. So we need to get we need to get to 100% renewables within the, the, the shortest time period we possibly can, um, and that can happen by the rapid deployment of solar and wind. It can also happen by bending down our use of fossil fuels. So it can sort of happen in in both a expansion of the new and an ending of the old. And we need much more, much much stronger measures to base the lifeline to 100%. By the time the deadline goes to zero and the clock currently reads six, six and a half years, basically. Yeah. And you can, everyone, anyone can see uh, all of that information, the science behind it, how to get involved, how to get your own clock and use it as a communication uh, accountability tool in your own climate action work at uh, climateclock.world, not .org or .com, but climateclock.world. All the information is there on how to get involved. Hey, Andrew, weren't you the guy who famously pranked bid $1.8 million on 22,000 acres of oil and gas drilling land in Utah just to stop the fossil fuel auction? No, but that was uh, someone I interviewed. Ah, I would like to hear about that. I have done many pranks in my time, but um, this, this one I didn't do, and this is one of the greatest climate action pranks ever, or or let's just call it a um, creative direct action, if you will. So this is... um. Uh, Tim DeChristopher was living in Utah. He's a he's a well-regarded uh, climate activist and uh, was working with various grassroots groups in Utah trying to protect natural lands from uh, various kinds of fossil fuel and other extraction. And during the Bush, the end, the very end of the Bush administration, 
there was a um, auction off of beautiful uh, Red Rock lands in Utah for oil and gas leases. And he showed up at the auction. He wasn't sure why, you know, what his plan was. <laughs> and, you know, kind of just tell people not to do this, tell people why this was destructive, make a statement. He wasn't sure. But before he could, you know, figure that out, someone said, are you here uh, to bid? And he kind of like had a momentary thought, you know, and he just, his sort of, you know, the gears started to click and he went, uh, yes. <laughs> and someone handed him a paddle. It was, it said number 70. And then he became famously known later as Bitter 70. And he sort of walked into the auction and then he sort of like was looking around. A couple of things got auctioned off and then he was like, wait, I'm going to bid. So he started bidding and you know, he didn't have any money, but he started bidding and he started winning all these lots, you know? like winning the leases to drill in this beautiful land that he wanted to protect, but he was winning these lots. And then eventually, you know, the auctioneer in charge of it realized there was something amiss because he wasn't recognized and he was bidding all these lots and people were looking strangely. We don't know who this is. So they shut, you know, that, the auctioneer sort of stopped the auction. And then he was brought up on charges and made a phenomenal speech at his, at his hearing uh, about the, the, the history of civil disobedience in the United States and how it's won all of these uh, social and environmental victories and was put in jail for two years and then uh, came out and decided, you know, thing after that, but basically he went to divinity school and at Harvard so that he could meld a faith-based approach to his climate disobedience work. And then I got the chance to interview him. Oh, and then in the end, what happened was because the auction was stopped and it was all got caught up in, in this sort of bureaucracy and legal sort of gray area. And by the time they sort of sorted it out, a Bush had transitioned to Obama and Obama canceled that auction. It was all sort of under federal lands. And so none of those uh, lands got auctioned off for extraction and they were preserved and defended. So this one individual taking an almost slight, you know, he knew he wanted to stop something that was bad, but he wasn't sure how and sort of by his own wits and, and bravery and moxie managed to protect a whole swath of extraordinarily beautiful, pristine uh, beloved Red Rock country in Utah. So it was just became an inspiration for people all across the country. If Tim could do this, uh, what can I do? This is a climate emergency. Find out more on the blog, ecoshock.org. No sign up, just the latest info, free for all. ecoshock.org. Welcome back. Alex is talking with author and activist Andrew Boyd. His latest book is I want a better catastrophe. Yeah, your book, I Want a Better Catastrophe, it's a pretty serious work. You went out and interviewed seven leading post-doom thinkers from sort of the doomiest dark places to those with a bit more hope. Some of them have been guests on Radio EcoShock, but other ones I would never have encountered without you. So I, I think this is one of the real benefits of the book. It's like an introduction service. Fantastic, yeah. No, it was an extraordinary experience. As you said, it was a pilgrim's progress, a sort of journey. They're partly chosen for a diversity of voices and also people, you know, who are not pretending that things are better than they are and yet staying, finding an ethical way to stay engaged, depending on the definition, even hopeful way to stay engaged. So that was sort of how I sought them out. You know, mentioned Tim DeChristopher uh, alongside him, uh, Joanna Macy, an uh, eco-philosopher, uh, beloved by many, Adrian Marie Brown. Uh, sort of a quote-unquote organizational healer and visionary fiction pioneer, Robin Wall Kimmerer, indigenous botanist, and 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 uh, you know uh, Gopal Dayanini, for example, a leading voice in the environmental justice and uh, climate justice movements. And they, we had these wide-ranging interviews, 
And that's all captured and poured into the book. And I, a few takeaways, like Pim, for example, one of the things I was curious about is how do people stay sane? How do they stay grounded? You know, how do they find a, you know, an ethical framework to step forward into this scary, uncertain future? You know, we're all grappling, you know, with these, with these, our own versions of this question. Tim, for example, action for him was sort of a coping mechanism, was the thing that kept him able to sort of stare clear-eyed at our sort of unfolding, or as one person said, you know, our dark and darkening future, you know? So it was through action that kept him grounded. And he, he likened it metaphorically to a bicycle, riding a bicycle, you know? Yes, it's wobbly as you're learning to ride it, or it's wobbly as you first get on it. But once you start pedaling, you find your balance. That really struck me and stayed with me, um, that notion. Gopal Dayanini said, for example, like acknowledged, you know, we're in for a lot of suffering. So let's distribute that suffering equitably. Not pretending things are better, but okay. But then what is our response? If we bring justice, if we can focus on justice, make a lot of the decisions about how we handle the crisis as it unfolds through a lens of justice, we will have, we might have bad outcomes, but we will have the best of the bad outcomes that are left to us. Adrian Marie Brown, for example, said something very beautiful that stuck with me. And it was, you know, it's like, yes, we're in for a fall. So let's fall as if we were holding a child on our chest and sort of fall into it, you know, protecting that child, you know, whether that's the people we love, the places we love, um, you know, the next generation, you know, it's just sort of such a beautiful image of care and compassion and solidarity and, and acknowledging that, yes, we're in for a big fall, but that doesn't mean we give up hope. That doesn't mean we fall into despair or, or doom. No, we have to act with all of our values, knowing that we're in for a a tough decades or century starting now. This is some of the wisdom that sort of came to me and that I poured into the book and, uh, you know, was changed by. Andrew, would you give us a reading? Yeah, I'll read. It's just one page long, and it is um, the title track of the book. It's uh, I Want a Better Catastrophe is the title. Climate catastrophe is coming. We know this. What we don't know is how bad it will be. In the best case scenario, an unprecedented global Green New Deal rapidly transitions the world economy off of carbon, holding global temperature rise under three degrees centigrade. This unfortunately causes large-scale polar ice melt, 12 inches of sea level rise by 2050, and major habitat disruption. We lose Miami, Shanghai, and many of our greatest cities. Tens of thousands of species become extinct. Coastal flooding and systemic crop failure lead to hundreds of millions of climate refugees, global resource wars, and partial social breakdown. But enough of us survive, and a chastened version of civilization, one that's learned to live within sustainable limits, stumbles through. That's our best case scenario. In the worst case scenario, runaway global warming of six degrees centigrade plus superheats the planet, wiping out humanity and many complex life forms. In the worst case scenario, catastrophe is total. But in the best case scenario, what we do matters. If projections tell us that one million of the Earth's species are on track to die off, and we can do something to help make that only 500,000, shouldn't we try? We must protect all that we can. We must do everything possible to limit the damage, including gracefully powering down our civilization and becoming lean and resilient enough to survive in a broken ecosphere with our humanity intact. What we want here is a better catastrophe. Imagine the protest rallies. Alex, imagine. <laughs> what do we want? A better catastrophe. When do we want it? As late in the century as possible. Door-to-door <laughs> -door recruitment? 
uh, excuse me, ma'am, care to sign this petition to only half over the planet? A little bit of a, a joke there, but, you know, captures a little bit of the task of uh, someone trying to tell the truth and do something about it. A defeatist attitude, you say. Hardly. It's hard-nosed, courageous, and full of hope for the future. What was Winston Churchill's rallying cry in the darkest moments of World War II? Quote, I have nothing to offer but blood, toil, tears, and sweat. Not exactly an upbeat message. He wasn't one to overpromise, and nor should we. He too had a choice of catastrophes. Europe as a Nazi-occupied death camp, or Europe bombed to pieces and split down the middle with some takeaway wisdom about the nature of evil. He chose a better catastrophe, and so should we. If catastrophe is where we're headed, let's fight hard to get the best catastrophe we can. Wow. And I also want to talk about, well, a few parts of your new book that came out in Dark Mountain in 2017 as you were working on it. For example, who are the 12 characters of the apocalypse and how did they end up touring England and Wales? <laughs> this was a many years process writing this book and it began as one thing and ended as another and there were many different stages of it in between. One of those stages was trying to capture many different perspectives in these tiny little sort of day in the inner life uh, vignettes of how people are experiencing and responding to what I call the, the impossible news that the climate scientists are bringing to us. So, you know, one, an eco-anarchist in, in, you know, plotting in the basement, just do eco-sabotage to try to stop the industrial machinery in, in their city from doing more damage. You know, another was um, someone who's just decided, I think it was called, um, let's party because it's uh, 2099. You know, someone who just decided it's, there's no hope. Uh, we're doomed. So why not just throw caution to the winds and burn as much carbon as they wanted and travel around the world and, you know, stay up all night, you know, at, in clubs and, you know, lean into the, the end of times hedonism. You know, there's logic to all of these POVs, you know, these, these different responses. Uh, other was um, sort of concerned community member who decides to, we're not going to really try to do things at the national or global level. Let's just fall back to the community level and, and get our own house in order. We're kind of following along the um, transition towns prescription, you know, building as just as possible resilient communities to, to cause the least amount of damage locally and also be, you know, prepare our, our towns and communities for a you know, for the impacts as they sort of unfold. So each had very different, you know, perspectives. And I tried to be honor each. There was no like critique. Even there was even a prepper, you know, who's sort of building their bunker and booby trapping it and, and the, the whole deal. And just trying to get inside the head of each person and all of these different responses that are sort of happening out there in society. And, you know, but sort of grounded in the inner voice of a, of a particular individual who sort of might be going through that and their, and their sort of reasons and logic and what it feels like to them. And I bundled them together and, and published this piece on the uh, you know Dark Mountain's uh, blog. Uh, and it was called uh, 12 Characters in Search of an Apocalypse, you know, as a sort of play on Pirandello, the famous, uh, the title of Pirandello's famous play. A few of those ended up in the book, but they not in this sort of cast of characters so much. I want to move on to the whole question of hope. Uh, there is hope, or at least there used to be, and you spent a whole chapter, complete with a wall-sized flowchart, to find the remains of hope and sort of justify it. And I'm wondering why all that angst? Can't we go on to meaningful lives without hope? Well, in my cultural scouting, and in my investigations and talking to people, it, it, 
hope would kept coming up and people had extremely different attitudes about hope. Uh, some could not imagine going on without it. Others sort of dismissed it as, you know, unnecessary. Let's just, you know, our house is on fire. Let's just do something about it. Hope or no hope. So there are very different sort of attitudes about it, but it kept coming up again and again. So, it, you know, arguably this whole book is an investigation uh, into hope and what kind of hope serves us. And I can uh, share a, a, like a passage from the book uh, that addresses that, if you'd like. I would. There's a whole chapter in the book with multiple pieces in it called, Is There Hope? So in the face of looming catastrophe, we don't know whether to double down on hope or give up hope completely. You know, we're not hopeful because uh, things like the facts are pretty hopeless, but we're not hopeless either because, you know, we love life. We have a heart that still beats and some part of us will always remain an irrepre irrepressible hope machine. It's a paradox, a human paradox, but that's how we do. And so we need a strategy. We need a way to walk our paradoxical path, a way to twin our warring selves. What kind of hope can still serve us? You know, there are many, many kinds. Four that I outline in the book are passive hope, heroic hope, stoic hope, and grounded hope. And I'll just step listeners through those four very, you know, briefly here. Passive hope is super positive. You know, it's almost Pollyanna-ish. It naively trusts that either technology will fix things or since the Earth's climate has changed before, we'll be fine. You know, the basic attitude is like, don't worry, be happy. You know, somehow it's all going to work out. This might give you some peace of mind, but it leaves little reason to act. And we actually really, really do need to act. Okay, so heroic hope is also hyper-optimistic, but it's far more action-oriented. You know, it lives by the credo, the best way to predict the future is to invent it. It takes a yes, we can. There's no limit to human ingenuity. Just do it kind of attitude. You know, despite their striking differences, you know, between passive hope and heroic hope, you know, they share one important quality. They both depend on results, good results. And when actual outcomes turn sour and dark, you know, or threaten to, you know, as I would argue, we're likely we're in store for, you know, it's kind of hardwired into our near and far future. You know, this kind of optimism based hope, this results based hope can quickly crumble and turn into pessimism. All right. So now what? Aha. So fortunately, we have two other kinds of hope to turn to stoic hope and grounded hope. Stoic hope says we can handle it. We've survived tough times before. Whatever happens, we can make it through. We can rebuild. You know, and if the worst comes to really worse, I'll drown with my boots on. Uh, but you know, this kind of stoic hope, it's sturdy, it's resilient, but it's not particularly proactive or strategic doesn't think down the field and take action. It just sort of hangs in there and kind of holds on and tries to get through. But we need to be both proactive and strategic. Enter grounded hope. This kind of hope, grounded hope, embraces the full paradox of our predicament. It says, yes, it's hopeless. And I'll give it my all anyway. This kind of hope is not dependent on outcomes nor attached to optimism or pessimism. Instead, it's grounded in our character and our calling. It recognizes the full difficulty of our situation, yet still chooses to be hopeful. Grounded Hope channels the pivotal insight of Vaclav Havel, the playwright and ex-president of the Czech Republic. Hope, he says, is an orientation of the spirit, an orientation of the heart. It is not the conviction that something will turn out well, but the certainty that something makes sense, regardless of how it turns out. You know, grounded Hope offers us no guarantee that we'll ever walk out of the darkness, but it shows us how to walk through it. Basically, you're doing what's right and what is necessary, and the doing and the walking are their own reward. And it comes back a bit to Tim DeChristopher, the way he explained hope to me 
his notion of hope is very different than what you would normally expect. And I, it was very sort of striking to me. And, you know, his understanding of hope is that it is the will to hold on to our values in the face of difficulty. So I'll leave you with that. That's a lot of what the book is about, is, is sort of finding the kind of hope that can serve us when we should not be relying on good outcomes because we're really, we've really crossed certain red lines uh, that are going to make our future very, very challenging. So what kind of hope can help us sort of navigate our way forward? A grounded kind of hope. And there's many, and many wisdom teachers have landed there and the book is full of a lot of guidance from a lot of different quarters for how to, uh, for each of us can find our own way to a grounded hope in this dark time. Andrew Boyd's new book is I Want a Better Catastrophe, Navigating the Climate Crisis with Grief, Hope, and Gallows Humor. Find it wherever books are sold, and I'll include a few more teaser quotes in my show blog at ecoshock.org. Andrew, thank you for spending so much time with us here at the end of the world. You are so welcome. I'm Alex Smith for Radio Ecoshock. view of the gravity of the situation, believing that radio has a responsibility to serve in the public interest at all times. Thank you for listening to Radio EcoShock again this week. And thank you for caring about this world. I can't be a pessimist because I'm alive. To be a pessimist means that you have agreed that human life is an academic matter. So I'm forced to be an optimist. I'm forced to believe that we can survive whatever we must survive.